The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So now we're opening up this. I think it's going to be really valuable for all of us because it's a really great uh, training list, these 10 qualities of the heart, or sometimes called the 10 perfections of the heart. And they're really here to answer the question like, if we wanted to set in motion a foundation that would make awakening unstoppable, and not only the awakening or this process of insight, but with that process of insight would be the capacity to use the insight in a way that would be very valuable for those around us, like would make us able to model it, talk about it, share it in ways that would be really useful for others. What would be those qualities that would create that foundation so that developing wisdom or insight would be impossible, would be unstoppable? And so this is that list. And it's none of these ten qualities are going to be surprising to you. I bet if we worked at it, you know, just brainstorming and then distilling the brainstorm, we'd come up with a list very close to the list that has been in the Buddhist tradition for a long time. So we have generosity. We have integrity. The integrity of non-harming. So ethical conduct. But the word integrity is good. It's this sort of reverence for life. Or this understanding that. It's not just that I care about my own well-being. But I realize everybody else cares about their well-being. In the same way I care about my well-being. And it's a very easy step to realize, so I also care about your well-being. I don't want you to be harmed. So developing that understanding is this integrity of non-harming. So we have generosity, non-harming. We have truthfulness, this deep value in speaking the truth, not coloring the truth, patience, renunciation, the joy of simplicity or letting go or renunciation. We have resoluteness and loving kindness and energy and equanimity. I'm missing one. Did I say patience? Patience. So those are the ten qualities. So who knows how long it will take us, but probably six months or so. We'll move through these ten qualities. And... Like I said, they're here to create a foundation. And, of course, when you develop, when you get interested in any one of these ten, the other nine are going to be close at hand. So don't feel like, oh, my God, to cultivate ten of these things will take forever. Yeah. But what else are we going to do? And <laughs> you'll find if you just get interested in one, and you might start with the one you're, you feel like is already ingrained in your personality, or you might start with the one that you don't feel is there strongly at all in your personality and then sort of dig into it a little bit. And the way we dig into it isn't like lamenting the fact that I'm not very generous or, you know, I'm not, I kind of, kind of quick and dirty with truth, you know, willing to bend the truth when it's convenient. It's not about feeling badly about ourselves. It's just bringing the value to mind. It's amazing how just that alone, like if you tomorrow on Monday, choose one of these ten or just start with generosity because it's the first one on the list and just bring to mind 
you're, that you value the spirit of generosity, not holding tight to your possessions, not holding tight this sort of uh, basic premise of scarcity. Like I'd like to share with you, but I don't know how much I'm going to need later. So I can't. And I don't really feel like taking any risks. Because when is enough enough? You see, there really isn't. Like whatever amount you've saved for your retirement, and this is becoming more poignant now that I'm 57, it's like, it's like, when is it enough? We could always use more. So generosity is like scary when we give, when we actually give what we want. Now it's easy to give things we don't want, but that's not really generosity. That's like getting rid of clutter. <laughs> generosity is when we start to be, give away things we don't want to give away. Like we have our time and then somebody needs it. And we don't, we really wanted to do whatever it is we wanted to do, but we give it away. Oh no, I'm going to show up for this person. They seem to want my time. They seem to need me right now. Or money, or whatever it might be. So just bringing it to mind that some some idea that of like just on an intellectual level now of uh, understanding that generosity is a good or beautiful enlivening thing or at least holding that as a possibility in our mind then we will just naturally start to notice it in ourselves and in others we'll see somebody doing something generous and we'll just sort of notice like that person seems happy by the way do you know generous people who aren't happy no, I mean, generosity is an enlivening quality. And if someone's not happy in their generosity, they're probably trying to be loved by other people by being generous. They're not actually being generous. They're trying to buy recognition. You know, I'll do this if you recognize what a good person I am. But that's not generosity either. That's something else. Like, I really need, I think I really need you to think this about me, and so I'm going to do something in order to get what I think I need from you. But when we actually give something that we like, would rather hold on to, but we give because it seems like the right thing to do, like that person needs it more than I need it, then we just notice, well, what what does that do to the mind and heart when we do that? So this is the exploration for these ten qualities and they're really, like when I mentioned about how they set in motion this awakening process, this inside process, another way it's talked about in the, the tradition is crossing the flood. So it can sound a little harsh to think of it this way, but as I talk about it more, it might make sense. So the Buddha used this image quite a bit, the flood, because teaching along the Ganges River for most of his life, the more common natural disaster was flood. A flood would come in. And back then, of course, they didn't have early warning systems. And in the middle of the night or whenever, if there was a lot of rain upstream or, or whatever, melting of snow, and then the flood could come in without any warning and wipe the village away. I mean, even nowadays, it still happens from time to time, even with all our good weather tracking and other kinds of information. So it was a real problem. 
And uh, the Buddha used this as the most common way to talk about suffering, how our mind gets swept away. And we'll, I'll save some time for people to share tonight. And it would be nice to hear examples how today or yesterday you noticed something got started and before long our mind was quite literally swept away in some obsessive pattern of worrying, fearing, hating, wanting, needing, lusting, whatever it might be. And then it can be a while before we get our feet back on the ground and we realize, whoa, And there can be a lot of destruction because during that flooding stage, we may have said things that later we wish we hadn't said or done things and set in motion all kinds of consequences for ourselves and others just because we were literally lost or caught up in that flood, in that obsessive pattern for a while. It's not so easy to notice in ourselves, but we definitely notice this in other people where they're just lost. And it's almost like, you know, you can't, you kind of know the person, but they're not there. They're sort of in that place, you know, and you you kind of know, just give them space. Don't believe what they're saying right now. And uh, we have we should at least have a lot of respect for the damage that can be done when we're in a flood. So the Buddha, being a good, uh, you know, very good at articulating how the mind works, he divided these floods into four categories. Usually three, but sometimes he'd make it four. But you'll see that that third category includes the fourth. So he said there's the flood of sensuality. Now, the Buddha, and this is important, The Buddha never said the fact that we have sensual experience is bad. How could it be bad? I mean, it's just part of being alive that we're sensitive in these six ways. We see, we're sensitive to sights, to sounds, to smells and tastes, to touches, and we're sensitive to to thoughts and emotions. And there's really nothing you can do about that. So we live a sensual life. But the flood isn't the fact that we live a sensual life The flood, he used this word yoke, is what the mind constructs so there's sensitivity and there are objects that we're sensitive to and they're yoked together and that's the attachment. So when my mind is dependent, has a sense of being dependent on me who's dependent on sensual experiences, then I can get into that obsessive flooding. I can get swept away even by things that in hindsight are really silly. Like if you have a little hangnail, right? that's just a central experience. But in that case, it could be like, I got to get rid of this. And we could be totally obsessed, you know, and miss the talk or miss whatever we're doing until we get the nail clipper and clip it off. Or we could be like, you know, my favorite program is on tonight. And just obsessing, this flooded with this idea of needing that central experience of laughing with these in this particular program. So it isn't the fact that there's an entertaining program and there isn't a fact that there's a mind that's sensitive to that. The problem is all of this stuff the mind constructs around us, somebody who needs it, somebody who will be disappointed if they don't get it right now. 
So it's the mind's dependency on sensuality, sensual experiences, that causes us to be swept away. We, we basically lose our humanity. And when we think of the terrible injustices people do, it's always justified, right? Whether it's the shooting in Charleston or the corporate greed or, you know, whatever it is, people have their justifications, right? I need that. I needed this to happen because and you just fill in the blank. And it's going to be about one of these four floods. So there's the, the mind's dependency on sensuality, the mind's dependency on becoming. So this is really about like recognizing, well, this isn't it. This isn't who I want to be. I don't feel fully happy, fulfilled. Well, what, what would... And then we imagine ourselves being fulfilled. We create something that doesn't exist in reality, right? It's just a fiction that we've created in our mind of a me who's happy because, and then, you know, we decorate that image we have in our mind because I have this job, this person in my life, this body, this wealth, this power, this recognition, this whatever it is. And then we, so we have that idea in our mind of who or what we want to become. And then now this moment, this present moment reality is not that. So this is not good because it's not that. So I don't like this. So we feel quite justified in hating, rejecting the present moment because it's not what we imagine we should be when I'm happy. This image I have of me becoming happy, me becoming fulfilled, me becoming whatever. And then we can endlessly, you know, because of that whole construction, it destabilizes happiness in the present moment because I can't be happy. I haven't become the person who's going to be happy. So this, right, we've concluded is not it. It's not enough. It's not that. Just in the same way that, you know, I have... Is it Alden's organic ice cream in my freezer? And even though I had some earlier today, you know, it's like when I have more or whatever it might be. So that's, I'm not having it now, so this isn't it. And we basically cross contentedness and peace, a sense of ease and happiness off the list because we have this idea, if only I become that person who gets to enjoy that treat. So whether it's the construction is built out of sensuality, having some sense experience, or becoming somebody, and both of these arise out of ignorance, which is the third flood that the Buddha described. And one subset of ignorance you'd call wrong view, and I'll talk about wrong view in a minute, but the basic idea of ignorance as a flood in like a lot of times we think of ignorance as, well, I'm doing something stupid. But in a more specific meaning, ignorance is when the mind uh, doesn't sense the need to investigate our experience. Like there's a contentedness with uh, what the mind thinks it knows. Or an arrogance even. Like... 
having the sense that I already know everything there is to know about me and what's going on and where happiness is and where suffering is. So it's abandoning that humility of investigation, of opening and doing fundamental research into the present moment. Like, oh, I don't need to because I got this. I know what's going on, right? And basically our conclusion is this isn't it, right? But when I, and then you fill in the blank, then that will be it. That's the moment I want. And we, we rarely question, even though the funny thing is we've had so many ideas about what the right moment is, doesn't it, it never catches our attention how inconsistent, like where happiness, how we describe happiness to ourselves, like sometimes it's with this, sometimes with that. Sometimes we get what we thought would make us happy and now we're not happy, so we think, oh no, no, that's not it. It's, it's this other thing. So even though it's really inconsistent, we're still sure we know what we're doing. Like this isn't it, and if only that, then that will be it. Even if you're like more sort of existential, you might go, God, I don't know what the hell's going on. But even that, we can sort of like, when I finally get clear what's up and down, you know, then. It's like, because I'm pretty sure that being confused about it isn't it. So, no matter how you do this, there's a sense of certainty. Because more than anything, we don't like ambiguity. So this is what ignorance is, aversion to uncertainty and ambiguity and and aversion to not knowing. But you see, how can we be a learner? How can we actually learn something if we're afraid to recognize that we don't know everything? We don't know. How are we going to learn something about suffering and the end of suffering when we're not willing to own how little we know? We'll just keep going on pretending we know. Like doing the same thing. I, I tell this story because it, it was so poignant at the time, but at the end of my freshman year in college, <clears throat> it was such a whirlwind for me of trying to be liked and trying to fit in and all of that that I'm sure some of you recognize, not just in college, but wherever, you know, coming of age. And and uh, I remember at the end of the school year, I was out going to school out in the East Coast and uh, I was going to fly back here because I grew up in Minneapolis and... I had a day, you know, most of a day waiting to leave for my flight. And uh, most of my friends had left. And so I was just sort of wandering around in a daze and just having a sense of what was left over and a real powerful disgust for kind of observing in hindsight like all the sort of desperate attempts to be cool and to be liked and to figure out who I am and how I want to present myself and all of that stuff. And just some real clarity how, boy, that that certainly doesn't lead to happiness. And I kind of worked with this for weeks and weeks in the summer, working my three jobs, trying to afford the college I was going to. And uh, so I, I didn't do much social, and but I, you know, clearly oriented around social life as most people do at that age. And I realized like later, a couple months into the summer, a few weeks before heading back, 
that the conclusion my mind had drawn, and I, I thought really deeply, this is before I had a practice, like, okay, you know, just seeing that desperate need to be liked, to fit in, to, and seeing how counterproductive it was, but not seeing any alternative. And I noticed myself talking myself into like, when I get back, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to do it better. Right? Like, I'm just going to be cooler about fitting in. You know, wiser about fitting in, about being the person that will be respected or, you know, whatever. Cool. <laughs> I mean, it's funny to say that. But but I I even realized at the time a little bit and then later, like, a great poignancy about knowing that I didn't know, but I was afraid to hang out in that space of knowing that I didn't know. So I was willing to do what I knew didn't work as opposed to being in that place of knowing that I don't know. I don't know how to be happy. I don't know what it, how to be happy given how much social energy, social programming I had. I don't know what to do with this. And to kind of go into the experience with a more humility and trial and error, you know, later, you know, by junior year, I had abandoned a lot of the pretense of trying to fit in. But then, you know, you kind of get into the sort of, I'm the one who doesn't fit in. (laughs) But it's endless. But it was slightly wiser than, you know, trying to be in the mainstream. But anyway, just an example of that humility of, of the opposite of ignorance. So ignorance as a flood is defending the status quo in the mind. I don't want to look too deeply at how my mind is operating because, you know, when you start opening things up, you might realize you don't really know what you're doing. And that initially is scary to own how confused or how ambiguous or uncertain everything is. So we choose ignorance. And then related to that, a subset of ignorance is what in Buddhism we call wrong view, which is the same as self-view, which is never questioning the premise that all of this is happening to me. As if there, even though, you know, in Western science and physics, they'd never agree to this, but subjectively we have a very strong, arrogant, unquestioned notion that whatever this is, it's happening to me, and there's nature, but nature's out there. Everything's happening according to causes and conditions, and it's happening to me. And I am somehow independent and outside of this natural world. Right? Isn't that kind of our experience? This subjective experience? And that notion, even though intellectually you might have great philosophical discussions with your friends, how that's not true, but as we operate in the world, Mostly we operate with that wrong view, that self-centered view. And that uh, identification with that view or that dependence on that view is its own flood because in subtle and not so subtle ways, all of our obsessions depend on that wrong view. right? Because that's why obsessive thinking makes sense because I'm obsessively trying to figure out 
how to take care of this constructed idea of me apart from everything else. And whatever conclusion I come to about taking care of me, it never feels right because the initial premise is constructed. That there's a me that needs to be taken care of and how am I going to do that? That basic premise doesn't actually represent reality. But it's a deep habit, cultural habit, maybe even beyond cultural habit. Would you mind turning the top two switches about halfway up as it gets a little dark? Thanks. So these are the four floods. The flood of sensuality, the mind's dependence on sensuality, thinking that happiness comes from sensuality. The Buddha wasn't against sensuality. He was just saying that Real happiness never comes from sensuality, sensual experience, because they come and go. We can't, like we, some of us have had a lot of nice sensual experiences, right? It's like when in my early 20s, I did a lot of backpacking, went to a lot of beautiful places, spent a lot of time, and it was always like wanting to go to even a more obscure place where you don't see anybody, you know, off trail, and it never ends. It's like you can have the most sublime experiences, whether it's in you know, sex or nature or food or you, know, you just name it, music, arts. And it can be really sublime and nice and then it ends and then you want something more. That's the truth of sensuality. So there's the flood of that, the flood of becoming, same thing. I can imagine so many marks, right? For a while, I thought, God, it would be so great to be, you know, uh, somebody who could sing great, wise songs and play the guitar, move people. (laughs) You know, all the dreams we had. I wanted to be a carpenter and build neat things and, you know, whatever. I wanted to be a hermit and just away from responsibilities and, all these becomings that, you know, we play with. One of the great things about getting a little older is like, it's like I can't even fantasize about these things anymore because it just doesn't make sense. Like, oh, there's no way I'm going to do that. (laughs) And it's sort of liberating to realize like all the things I can't do. I mean, this is like technically not possible anymore with this body or at this age or like, you know, I'm not going back to school for sure. So that just cuts out so many things that requires like certain educational hoops to be jumped through. So that's the becoming obsession. And then the sort of uh, arrogance of non-investigation. Like, okay, I got this. I know. And this opposite of you know humility, knowing that we don't know. So that like willing to be a beginner. That's another way we talk about that breaking free of that obsession. And you see this in people, and it's more endemic the older we get. One of the advantages of being relatively young is there's, uh, you know, there's, it's more culturally acceptable to not know what the hell you're doing. You know, like, I don't know. Or what's even important. But, you know, it's not cool. Once you're in your 30s, 40s, and above, you know, you're supposed to know what you're doing. You're supposed to know what's important. 
You know, you're supposed to have a plan for your life. And, uh, but it's really nice to give each other permission to know that we don't know. And to really let things fall apart. Right? And that's, that's really at the heart of practice. Even the, what we did in the guided meditation, even as simple as like bringing the attention to the breath, sustaining the attention with the sensations of the body, you have to let go of all the conceptual meaning of who you are, what's important, all your mistakes, all your successes. All that has to be dropped. It literally doesn't exist if you're just with your body as you're breathing in, with your body as you're breathing out. So in a way, everything gets stripped away and the heart is naked, not adorned by the meaning the mind gives to things. And it feels really alive and open in the way it can only feel when the mind is willing to put that meaning down. All the ideas you decorate your sense of self, your constructed sense of self with. And some of those ideas are quite difficult. You know, like we hate ourselves or we think we're bad in this way and that way and we've got this set of ideas about why we're not good enough. Or we think we're great in these ways. It doesn't matter. All those adornments, all those ways we give meaning to the sense of self or a burden. A kind of an ongoing obsession because I've got to keep that story of self going. That's that third and fourth flood. So this list of ten qualities, it creates the foundation, it creates enough stability so we can see these four floods for what they are. Not self, not necessary, the cause for suffering. If we don't see these floods, there's no letting go. The cause for letting go, for going beyond these floods, is seeing them, understanding them as they are. This is a path, you know, the Buddha calls it a path of awakening, or we could say we're developing understanding. And what are we learning to understand? How the mind falls into these obsessive patterns all the time. And we think we're doing pretty well when our obsessive pattern is relatively less toxic than other obsessive patterns that are relatively more toxic. So it's this relative happiness of having relatively untoxic obsessive patterns, right? And then we care about those people who have relatively more toxic obsessive patterns. But there is a way to be free of all obsessive patterns in the mind. But we have to see them for what they are. And it isn't easy for us to look at these, especially the more subtle obsessive patterns, like around sense of self. Because it's subtle and the habit is very deep and pervasive, we need, the mind needs a lot of stability, a lot of clarity. And these ten qualities, or deepening one of these qualities to the nth degree, it's said in the tradition that, you know, initially, like just using generosity as one of the ten, you know, first we just, on a superficial level, recognize, yeah, that's, I respect generosity as a value. I'm open to the idea that it actually is a cause for real happiness, well, a sense of a deep sense of well-being. I don't get it. I'm a little frightened by it, but I'm willing to just think about it. And so then 
what we do is we start thinking about it, and especially we think about it in those moments where it's facing some opposition. Like, we've got an opportunity to give a little, but it scares us a little. Like, I don't really want to go home and hang out with my parents because it's a little bit like a black hole. They really want me to be there. They need me to be there. But I'm trying to have my own life here. And so, and so then, unfortunately, right, we remember, oh, yeah, I've been thinking about generosity. You know, and then it's all of a sudden very poignant. Like, okay, let's see. This is, you know, let's see. So let me just give a little and sense what that sense sets in motion in my life. Is it enlivening or is it deadening? Cause for happiness, cause for suffering. That's the more reflective. But the more and more we play with it in those places in life where it's meeting some opposition, some habit energy that doesn't want to go in the other direction of the parami, the generosity we're bringing to mind. When we do that over and over again, it begins to have a power and we start to trust that value, whether it's any of these ten, generosity, truthfulness, patience, kindness, equanimity, resoluteness, wisdom, integrity. It, it ends up having a power and we trust it like, like that's a card I can play in any situation in my life and it's going to illuminate it. It's like I'll know better how to move through this situation in my life because I'll trust this value the heart has in non-harming or in generosity or in sticking with the truth. It sort of lights our way through the messy, difficult places in our lives that we have to you know, unavoidably move through. So I want to leave it here. It'd be nice, like I mentioned earlier, to hear about some of the floods you've noticed and maybe how they fit into these four categories that I talked about tonight or any questions you have about what I've said. And we've got this great mic. Some of you have seen it already. Remember, you got to hold it really close to your mouth and not like this, but actually pointing right at your mouth. And that way everybody will be able to hear what's being said. So who would like to start? What are you noticing? What would you like to share or questions that you have? Yeah, do you want to pass it back to him in the orange shirt? Uh, my name is Jim. I'm not actually sure which flood this is, but uh, someone in my life who is an addict recently began using again, and I'm very flooded with <laughs> ideas of how can I make this right? You know, how can I, you know, rather than... and it sounds like kind of like what you're describing and I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to be here. I want to be past this point where he's back in remission or back in treatment yeah. or something like that. And I've, it's, I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but it sounds a lot like what you are talking about. Yeah. So one thing that we can, uh, you know, just let's just talk about it in terms of generosity, just because we'll, that's a theme we'll be working with for the next few weeks. And uh, it may seem like wanting this person to be free of this addictive pattern is sort of a generous wish. But what might be a greater gift right now, like a place to start, is to not be afraid of his suffering or her suffering, right? Right? 
Because that's what, before they can do anything, they have to meet what's going on. Like they actually have to see the destructiveness, assuming that it's a destructive habit that they have. They actually have to see it. That means the mind has to be clear. But if we're really busy hating ourselves or really busy being in denial because it's too painful to not be in denial, then the person keeps missing the opportunity to see how much this isn't helping. So what you can do is model what that person has to do. They have to be unafraid of what's happening because they have to meet what's happening in order to do something different. When somebody has a lot of pain in their life, they don't want to feel it. And that flood of not wanting to feel the pain, we're willing to do anything, even if it doesn't work, like use drugs or drink alcohol or some addictive pattern, because on the surface, it seems like it creates some distance from our suffering, but of course, it's just setting the suffering in motion. So the first thing you can do, maybe initially you have to do it at a distance, not when you're actually with the person. But as that person comes to mind, instead of cringing at the thought that they're using again, or cringing at the thought that they're maybe destroying their life or making bad choices, maybe you can cultivate a fearless, honest, soft uh, holding of what you sense is true in this person's life. Oh, it's like this for them now. It probably feels like this, right? So you're using your imagination and drawing from your own life and your own experience with this person and you're learning to be stable, unafraid of how confused that person's mind might be, how much in denial, how self-destructive, or whatever you imagine that is like for that person. You're learning to see it clearly without judgment, without fear. And it's compassion that allows you to get close. That's the actual definition of compassion is your mind's willingness to be close. And when you're actually close, when you have some moments where you can bring them to mind, and especially when you can do it when you're with that person, then you might actually know what to say or do that will be helpful. Because then what you say and do won't be because you can't stand the fact that they're suffering. It will be because you're right there, awake, intimate, and unafraid. And your response might be different than it will be initially when you just don't want that to be true. You just don't want that to be happening. You want it to be done or you want it to be fixed. So it's not easy to do, but that's really our job as a friend is to learn how not to be afraid. And basically you're modeling for them what they have to do. They have to find, however they can, some stability so they can see more clearly what's going on in that pattern. And that's an act of generosity. And it's much easier to just, you know, want to dismiss them. You know, they're just screwing their life up. And then sort of, as a way of kind of holding them at some distance. It doesn't mean we have to become codependent. It doesn't mean we have to give them things that we know better than to give them. But it means that we're not afraid to show up. We're not afraid to love them. 
And even like the people we see at the intersections, maybe you're one of those people at the intersection, but, you know, who are asking for money, who knows what we should actually do with those people when that happens? I don't really know. I have my different strategies. But what I've learned for sure is closing my heart is not the answer. So whatever I do, I practice not kind of having some pat answer I put up in my mind so I don't actually have to show up to that uncomfortable dynamic of somebody four feet away looking at me. You know, how to be alive and free in that moment, unafraid to show up in that moment as an act of generosity for myself and for that other person. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Good luck. Other thoughts? All the way over here. Uh, over here in the corner. Kristen. It's nice uh, for folks to say their names. Hi, I'm Kristen. I'm wondering, Mark, how I know and have known for years intellectually that once I get here or once this stress is over, I know that it's, life isn't going to be much different than it already is. Like, once I get here, then then I'll be happy, kind of like mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier. Um, I know that, and I know it intellectually, and I hear it. I've been hearing it for years. I get it. But it's still, um, for example, right now we're going through a big transition in our lives. We're moving out of state, changing careers, different things like that. I, you know, I can't stop the obsessing about it and the to-do list and then this and that. And I'm, you know, I think as soon as all this is over, then I can relax or then I can be happy. But it's okay to do the planning. But but as you're doing the planning, you can keep reminding yourself um, that happiness comes and goes, right? And it's not... You know, your life has taught you it's not a function of what you have and what you don't have, who you've become or haven't become. And we can cultivate, like this is a, we have to cultivate this refuge of a happiness that's not conditioned, not based on circumstances, getting somewhere. Because wherever we get to, that's not stable. Wherever you get, you know, if, even if you got to the Mecca, like Seattle or Portland, <laughs> it's even more cool than Minnesota, Minneapolis, you know. You know, and you get the cool job in the cool town, you know, and you guys are still pretty young, you know. And then, it, but that nothing of that is stable, and you know, your mind knows that. I know those things, but my yeah. body doesn't know. Yeah. But have a sense of humor about it and talk to your partner, Jason, about it, how like how you know that these things, you're going to do it, still makes sense to do it, but you're not under the illusion or you're training yourself to not be under the illusion that it will be a lasting happiness. It may be really nice. It may actually be nicer than what you have here. But whatever it becomes, and it might not, but whatever it becomes, it won't be stable. It will be becoming whatever's going to be next, right? And what that does is it makes the mind wonder, well, what is a stable refuge? And how about 
being happy no matter the conditions, like a mind that's not dependent on sense pleasure, on becoming somebody, not dependent on anything. So that's where the Buddha pointed. This is the insight. If you want to go beyond these floods, you need to first intuit and then orient your heart around a happiness that's unconditioned, not dependent on anything. Right. So that means it's here and now. It's always here and now. Not because of these conditions here and now. It's here and now no matter the conditions. So it's the happiness of the mind not being dependent on conditions. So it's a different place to look for happiness. And it's good to hear your comment, Kristen, because it's true. Even though we know better, we still do that. And it's a little bit like what I was saying after freshman year. I knew better, even then. But I, because I, even though I knew this wasn't working, I didn't know what else to do. So I just ended up doing more of the same. And that's what we do. And that's why getting the pointing out instructions from the Buddha, like, hey, there actually is a different refuge. It's subtle at first. It's counterintuitive at first. But it actually makes a lot of sense. And the more we look, the more we intuit its rightness. You know, whether you call it non-attachment or non-clinging, initially... It just doesn't feel like, how could that be? How could non-attachment actually lead to the happiness I seek, the release, the freedom I seek? How could that be? But we have to check it out. If you never check it out, it won't make sense. You have to poke around a little bit. And the way the Buddha motivates us to poke around is he talks a lot about these floods because what that does is it makes us suspicious, like, wait a minute, this isn't going to really work. I kind of know it's not going to work. And we get curious enough to poke around. Well, and that's when we sit, right? When we're sitting in meditation, and we'll have to end here, you know, we're doing something really ordinary like being in the body. We're putting down that whole world like I mentioned earlier. And you might notice how alive you begin to feel, how free you begin to feel. But it's not because of something special. It's because what the mind has abandoned. It's not engaged in one of these floods for those three minutes where the mind settles down. And we begin to intuit, wait a minute. I felt more alive, more free, more happy sitting there in the middle of my experience doing nothing, not becoming anybody, not trying to have a nice experience. So maybe I don't need that exercise machine or that go out to that restaurant or move to wherever you guys are going to move to. Don't move! (laughs) Because when you guys move, then we're going to think it's better somewhere else. (laughs) Maybe we should move. (laughs) But before we move, let's just take a few minutes and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Content knowing that some of these words have landed and some haven't, and that's okay. And appreciate being here in community. How sweet that is to be able to gather on a Sunday night together. And in a wholesome way to feel responsible 
to cultivate this wisdom, not just for our own well-being, but as a gift, an act of generosity for all those people we interact with and through the ripple effects for all beings everywhere. May our lives be a cause for real happiness, freedom from suffering. And thanks again, everyone, for being here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.